morning, Christ City Church. Hey, I'll take it. Um, it's, uh, it's good to be here. It's an honor to uh, worship with you and to be among your number this morning. My name is Matthew Watson. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. Uh, most folks just call me by my last name, Watson, uh, so you can do that as well. Um, if you're feeling, um, you know, really want to get in my good graces, you can refer to me as Reverend Dr. <laughs> Watson. No one does that, um, despite it being true. Um, I want to um, <laughs> <wanna> honor <laughs> uh, the... Uh, uh, just really, re- just really glad that you're here. I do want to recognize that uh, we are here at the first Sunday of uh, Black History Month in this country, and yeah. want to celebrate that, yeah. and <clears throat> to just honor um, our African American siblings that have uh, paved so much of the way for this country, and reminding us of the dignity of people. Uh, I do pray that you take this month and this moment, not just this month, but every month, but this one in particular. Uh, uh, to consider again, to, to read the writings of uh, some of our black uh, historians and theologians and ministers and uh, listen to the ways that God has been working in traditions. I pray that you would um, continue to uh, put yourself, put your shoulder to the weight of racial justice in this country. Um, not just in February, but this is a good time to start. And for us, for us to collectively as a congregation t- to continue to commit for the work of equity and racial justice as a reflection of our understanding of who God is and that God calls us by name. So we want to honor that and recognize that. Also, I, I didn't ask for permission. I will apologize if this is embarrassing. I do want to honor uh, Darren Vandertang today. Um, yesterday, uh, she became a U.S. citizen. Uh, <laughs> Her, her story is a remarkable one. For the past 50 years, she's been living in exile. I'll let her tell the story, but today she's got a country. That's no small thing. So, welcome. Um, have you ever been asked a, uh, a question that was, like, so hard, you just didn't know how to answer it? Like, you didn't know, not because, the, like, the question was hard, but, like, like, the, like the, the underlying, you know, like, presuppositions, you're like, I just don't even know, like, how to begin to answer that question. You ever, like, if somebody just walked up to you and said, hey, w- like, what does maroon smell like? And you're just like, I don't, what? Or like, hey, what, you know, what time is high tide at the McDonald's on Barney Circle? You'd be like, bro, like, do you know how many dots are disconnected in that question? <laughs> I don't even know, like, what are you talking about? Did you, anybody know? You know? You're not feeling, listen, look, uh, I realize that those are kind of like silly, nonsensical questions, and there can be, you know, other questions that are a bit more straightforward, but, but that still don't fit. All right, so here's the thing. Years ago, uh, my wife Lisa and I, we were living in Fresno, California, in the Central Valley, and we lived in a community house. It was like an intentional Christian community house in downtown Fresno. And then one year, one of our housemates got the idea that we should form an indoor soccer team. Um, and joined like the co-ed adults indoor soccer league uh, with some of our neighbors that we were ministering to and ministering with, that they should join the team too. Now, the thing about our neighborhood, it was a largely Latino neighborhood with a significant population of immigrant farm workers. So our team ended up being made up of college students living in a Christian hippie commune and some of our neighbors who spent their days working in fields and driving farm trucks. And then you had me and Lisa, all right? Lisa had played exactly zero days of soccer in her life at this point. I, however, had years of experience playing soccer, and by years I mean two. 
because when I was 10, I played for the East Dallas Star Blazers, and we were really good. Now, our indoor soccer team, we actually were really good. We had some really good players, uh, and we had just a good bit of fun playing together. Uh, And then one night, uh, we're playing another team that was also good, but they were kind of rough. They were a little aggressive. Um, And at one point, um, I believe Lisa, Reverend Lisa back here, got called for a yellow card because she ran a thousand miles per hour into another person and didn't try to get the ball or nothing, just like, (laughs) just body checked her into the wall like we're playing hockey because it's indoor, so you got the walls. Just smashes this poor child. (laughs) And like, they're mad at us now. And Lisa's like, oh, sorry, God bless you. You know, like, (laughs) Lisa gets cautioned for her aggressive play. The other team gets heated. And now they're playing aggressive. And it's kind of back and forth. And goals are being scored. And like, bodies are flying around. And then at one point, one of our players makes an amazing move on one of their players who then gets really frustrated. And a fight breaks out. Benches clear. I'm bailing off the top into the thing like it's just a melee. And I'm out there and like pulling guys off the scrum. And I'm kind of like looking at Lisa because I need to make sure, can, you know, even if a fight breaks out, better not touch my lady because I'm coming. I'm going to lay hands on you. Praise God. You know, and I'm ducking and dodging and I'm like defending the honor of our team in the middle of this fight. And finally, like the ref's blowing his whistle and he separates us and he's like, that's it, game over. Like, we're like, no, we got like 20 minutes left. He goes, no, you don't. You guys can't even play together. And like, he just ended the game. And so me and Lisa, my housemates that we minister with are all like standing there going, my word, what in the world just happened? Like, and I realized that, you know, my wife, our Christian housemates, many of whom were pacifists, like attended the Anabaptist (laughs) college in our town. Like, and our neighbors just got into a massive brawl at the suburban indoor soccer club in Clovis, California. And we get back to the house, to our community house, and our non-soccer playing housemates look at us and go, did you win? <laughs> I was like, man, I, I, like, I didn't even know how to answer the question. Like, I didn't know what to say. Like, it was a normal question, I suppose, but it was so far removed from what had happened. I was like, yeah, <laughs> we, we won. I don't know what to tell you. Have you ever been like, like ask a question like that? Like, you're like I don't even... Like your question, maybe it's a fine one, but I, it's just so far removed from, from the reality of the situation. So far off the mark that the, and the starting point is just so far removed. It just feels like a ridiculous question. In today's passage, we encounter a group of people angling to trap Jesus in some gotcha question. A question that's completely disconnected from the truth of the situation and absent from understanding of the context of God's kingdom. In this context of Mark, uh, this passage comes after a series of questions that have been put to Jesus as a way to seek Jesus' demise. If we look back just for a minute and just a few verses prior in Mark 11, the Sanhedrin, which was a group of religious leaders whose power centered uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin, they, they come questioning Jesus' authority. And in the text in Mark 11, this group is referred to as the chief priests and the elders. That's how we know that uh, it's referencing the Sanhedrin. That's how they're often referred to in Mark's gospel. In Mark 11, they're asking Jesus, well, where do you get your authority? And they're asking them, in this case, they're asking, where do you get your authority to overturn tables and cast out money changers? 
That's, they're asking Jesus a, a religious leadership and a religious authority question. Earlier in, uh, in, earlier in Mark 12, there's a different bunch that comes and they question Jesus. In this scene, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. They come asking about paying a tax to Caesar and whether or not those that follow God should or shouldn't pay an imperial tax. They're asking a political and a populist question of Jesus. And then in the passage that Lisa read and that we've been covering in our Mark uh, reading guide this week in Mark 12, it, it covers this third group of religious leaders. And this time it's the Sadducees who've come to question Jesus, and they're asking a theological and a legal question of Jesus. The Sadducees, they were um, this group, they were a group of, religious, uh, of Jewish religious leaders. Uh, they were smaller in number than the Pharisees or even the Herodians for that matter, but they held significant religious and political sway in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were related to the priestly class. They were tied to power structures in the temple, and they were more connected to the wealthy in Jerusalem. Though they were less popular than the Pharisees, uh, they looked to protect their power, and they looked to protect their influence by keeping peace in Jerusalem on Rome's behalf. Now, theologically, the Sadducees, they were a little bit different than the other religious groups as well, in a few ways. First, it appears that the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Books referred to as the Torah, or often referred to as the books of Moses, believing that Moses is traditionally believed to be the author of them. Secondly, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in an afterlife, uh, whereas the Pharisees did. When I was a kid in youth group, I don't know if this was your experience, when I was a kid in youth group, one of the ways that they wanted us to remember the Sadducees is they said they didn't believe in heaven, and so they were sad, you see. Oh, my people, mi gente, that's great, I love it. I know it's kind of silly, but yo, look, I'm 30 years later, I still remember. Sadducees don't believe in afterlife. Why? Because they're sad, you see. <laughs> it's actually um, the, this last point that sort of tips the Sadducees' hand in this conversation with Jesus. They're asking about things which they do not believe, and they're asking about a practice that is no longer practiced. In the hopes of extracting from Jesus an answer that will not suffice so that they might find a reason to kill Jesus without consequence. Mark points this out beginning uh, in verse 18. He says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to him, Jesus, with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves, him without, uh, leaves a wife but no children, Man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. And the story continues. And they launch into this hypothetical scenario about a woman who was widowed seven times over by seven different brothers and then conclude with their question of verse 23. Verse 23, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? You see, in their, in their hypothetical question, they are describing an older Jewish practice it's called Leverite law or Leverite marriage. Leverite means husband's brother. And the law was initially instituted in the Old Testament by Moses. It was instituted in that day as a way to protect women from exploitation at that time and to protect women particularly financially and chiefly by protecting her property rights and her inheritance rights. Stories of Leverite marriage, they occur in the Old Testament in Genesis 38 and the tragic story of Judah and Tamar and then redemptively in the story of Ruth. 
In Deuteronomy, it actually describes what happens if, uh, if a man refuses uh, to marry the woman. The woman can actually then bring the man before the community. And then in this really wild scenario, she takes the sandals off of the man uh, and I think then begins to beat him uh, with the sandal and then spits in his face. And from that point forward, he's referred to as the unsandaled, as a way to carry the shame of not protecting women and violating and oppressing those that are vulnerable. Just imagine sort of like a chunkla beating, if you're <laughs> familiar with that. So, leverate marriage, it was, it was an ancient law. It was handed down by Moses. In Jesus' day, it wasn't practiced. There had emerged other laws, and cultural values had changed that better protected vulnerable widows and rendered leverate marriages obsolete. But here are the Sadducees. They're asking questions about a law that had long fallen out of favor and was no longer followed nor necessary. And he's asking about a theological belief, resurrection, that they didn't even believe in. It's like if the Sadducees, you know, ask something like, uh, Jesus, if Pastor Lisa assaults a lady with her feet and a fight breaks out between Christian hippies and Fresno farm workers at the suburban All-Stars, uh, who won the soccer game? <laughs> what? I understand all the words, but I think you're asking the wrong question, and you're missing the lunacy of the story. And I don't even think you believe soccer is a real thing. But that's what they ask. Now, before we dive into Jesus' response, I want us to um, kind of step back for a minute and see what's happening more broadly in this section. Throughout the series, throughout the series in Mark that we've, that we've been walking through, as we've moved through the gospel, there's a set of questions that we've kind of pinballed off of that we often return to. Um, and these are the questions of what is Mark's purpose and what are Jesus' words? What, are Mark's, what is Mark's purpose and what are Jesus' words? What is Mark's purpose? Why is Mark telling this story? Where in the overall flow of uh, the gospel does this story emerge? And how does that give me insight into what Mark is meaning to communicate to his readership? What is Mark's theological or discipleship aim with this story? What came before this story and what comes after and what messages is being communicated with this story's location? What is Mark's purpose? And then the other question is, what are Jesus' words? With each of these stories, we've had to wrestle with what Jesus is specifically saying, what Jesus is communicating to this particular audience that he's speaking to, and then what sense do we make as 21st century readers? What meaning do we make of it? What are the implications for our lives in light of Jesus' words? Does that make sense? So we ask, what, what is Mark's purpose and then what are Jesus' words? When we look back at Mark 11 and 12, sort of this cascading series of questions from religious leaders that are put to Jesus, and the story with the Sadducees um, earlier, well, the story with the Sadducees, Mark's purpose is the same that it has been with each of the instances, each of the previous two encounters with the religious leaders who come asking Jesus' question. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the greater authority. In Mark 11, when the Sanhedrin, when they come to question Jesus about his authority, he tells them the parable of a vine dresser and a vine dresser's son. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is better than religious leaders who exploit and who harm those that they are called to care for. And Jesus is better than manipulative and selfish religion. Jesus has religious authority. Jesus' words, well, the words are sharp to the Sanhedrin. He identifies himself as the son of of the vineyard owner, and the Sanhedrin understand themselves as the wicked workers who seek their own gain. 
In earlier parts of Mark 12, when the Pharisees and Herodians, they come asking Jesus about taxes. Mark wants us to know that Jesus has authority even over Caesars. And all the world belongs to God. Jesus' words are brilliant and comforting. They remind us that all of us bear God's image. And it is upon our lives that God is inscribing his most beautiful words. In this section in Mark 12, the Sadducees come calling and Mark wants to again illustrate that Jesus has authority over religious leaders, all of whom approach Jesus and call him teacher, by the way. But more importantly, Mark wants us to see that Jesus has authority not just over religion and religious leaders and not just over rulers of the world, but that Jesus has authority over all of life and the life to come. The words of Jesus in each section, they are particular, and Jesus' message is specific to each instance. But Mark's purpose in telling, in the telling of each of, uh, of these stories, each time that Jesus is questioned, Mark's purpose is the same. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is a greater authority, greater than religious leaders, greater than political leaders, than economic leaders, than financial leaders, greater than uh, life and life itself. That Jesus is the one in whom we can trust because Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is worthy of our trust. So that's what Mark's purpose is for Mark 11 and for Mark 12, including the passage that we read. Now, I do want to get to the words that Jesus says specifically and what Jesus is communicating. But before I do that, I actually need to spend a little bit of time saying what this passage is not about. This passage is actually not about marriage. Now, I know that maybe in your Bible, the heading of this section is probably something like marriage at the resurrection. Heck, even in the reading guide, we labeled this section marriage and the resurrection. But the passage isn't about marriage. And I realize that this Uh, that the whole setup of this passage is a question about marriage, and Jesus does make a single statement about marriage in verse 25. But the more that we actually make this passage about marriage, the more likely we will be to miss what Jesus is really wanting us to know. Christ City's always been a, a diverse church, been diverse racially, been diverse ethnically, diverse in our states and nations of origins, diverse in our background, diverse theologically, and diverse in our experiences of faith. Some of us have been following Jesus for a long time. We've been a part of churches for a long time. And others of us, we're, we're, we're a bit newer to church and newer to faith. But for those of us that have spent a long time in churches, perhaps growing up in churches, we come across passages with, with the word marriage in it. Uh, and the preacher seizes upon that as an opportunity to preach about marriages. That might be some of your experiences. Um, even when Lisa read the passage, you thought, oh, man, comes a marriage sermon. <laughs> it might have stirred up different feelings for you about that made a start of actually feelings of anxiety or apprehension. Sometimes when marriage is the center of a sermon, there can be a way that marriages are talked about wherein it can seem as though married life, especially married life with children, is the pinnacle of Christian living, for Protestants anyway. Churches can often cultivate a cult of marriage that elevates married life to an idolatrous level leaving those within our community who are single feeling further isolated, second class, or as though they're carrying some infirmary that a wedding day is supposed to cure. Passages and sermons that mention marriage, they've been handled in ways that frankly have wounded those in the church. Those that are single or those that have experienced widowhood or divorce, 
because of a minister's lack of care or nuance or callousness to the experiences of our single siblings. The result can be an instinctive repulse from sermons or scriptures that hint at marriage. And our LGBTQ siblings, who for so long endured in the faith, even while being taught that marriage was not for them and having marriage denied them, being presented with a gospel that excluded them, yet you persevered, continually showing the church what faith and grace and welcome and inclusion looks like, presenting a more beautiful picture of Jesus and God's gospel than what the church could have imagined. Churches, those that, that follow Jesus, our Savior who was single, by the way, if our understanding of marriage, if our preaching of marriage, our wrestling with passages that mention marriage, if it doesn't stir in us an affection for Jesus, if it doesn't lean into healing and hope, if rather they hurt or harm or exclude or damage, then we, or, or make it hard for people to see Jesus and make their way to Jesus, then we must return to Jesus and surrender our understanding of marriage in light of Jesus. Last thing on marriage, given that the passage isn't about marriage, <laughs> is that marriage is a good thing. Uh, ironically enough, I had completely forgotten about this, but seven years ago, almost to the day, I preached on this passage. Now, it wasn't this passage, it wasn't Mark's passage, it was Luke's passage, the parallel passage in Luke. And in that sermon, I spent half the time, which I'm coming dangerously close to doing in this sermon, I spent half my time talking about marriage. I spent the last third of the sermon laying, about a bunch of, laying out a bunch of resources that the church had to strengthen marriages and those that were heading towards marriage. I talked about a premarital resource, Repairing and Rich, that was available, a resource that we still use today to help couples prepare for life together. I talked about counseling that was available and still available for couples that are in crisis. And in that sermon, I said, marriage is good, but only so far as it points to Christ. I still believe that. And then I followed that up with a C.S. Lewis quote, ironically, from his book, The Great Divorce. <laughs> Christ City, I, I do want us to be a church for that helps foster strong marriages, for sure. Younger folks get married. I want to see strong young folk marriages. For those on the other side of pain and Stepping towards new marriages, I want your marriage ahead to be strong and beautiful. I want to see strong marriages. I want to see us see strong gay marriages. I want us to see strong marriages that point to healing and intimacy and love and the fullness of Christ. And for those siblings that are single, either because of a season of life or life's circumstances or because of choice, I want this to be a place where you experience intimacy with your faith community and with God, where you experience a sense of mission, and purpose, and that you are supported just as you are in all of your beauty and fullness and wholeness. But this passage isn't about marriage, or singleness for that matter. The passage is about God's eternal and beautiful and transformative kingdom. Jesus begins and ends his response to the Sadducees by saying to them, you're in error. You're badly mistaken. Verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? And Jesus goes on to affirm that there will be a resurrection. Verse 25, when the dead rise, what Jesus says, 
And in this regard, Jesus responds theologically as a Pharisee would, not as a Sadducee. Jesus indicates that the Sadducees' error, it stems from two places. One, they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. As theologian Timothy Goombas notes, their deficiency in understanding God's power is that they assumed continuity between this present age and the resurrection. They imagine that the framework and structures would remain the same along with cultural practices and everything else that oriented community life among God's people. Marriage, including leveret marriage law, was for the protection of families and their property rights. And the Sadducees assumed that these same needs and these same institutions would continue into the future age. Their question to Jesus assumes that the age to come, that, that God's kingdom is simply like this life, but maybe just a little bit better with fewer problems, rather than seeing it as a world transformed. It's as though they asked God what the criminal justice system was going to look like in heaven. The question wouldn't occur to Jesus to answer because such a system isn't needed in a place where people have what they need and peace and love and harmony dwell. In the age ahead, God is going to powerfully and beautifully transform our world, including our cultural practices and social arrangements and our institutions and the mechanisms and systems and structures that we have in place for securing justice and protecting the vulnerable. They will be transformed and God will radically renew and renovate and overhaul the entire cosmos. Resurrection is not a matter of merely extending our current reality into heaven but just making it a little bit better. What Jesus is saying is that in the age to come, it will be altogether richer and fuller and different than we imagine, yet God will be faithful even beyond death. As one poet put it, we can no more imagine the age to come than an infant in utero can imagine the Grand Canyon at sunset. This is the point Jesus was trying to make to the sad Sadducees' question. In this passage, Jesus is pushing back against the resurrection, rejecting Sadducee belief that this life is all that there is. And simultaneously, in the larger context of, of the questions that Jesus is being asked by Pharisees and Herodians and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, he's pushing against the belief that God is only concerned about afterlife survival of individual souls. For Mark, God's redemptive work throughout history cannot be contained within the confines of life in this world. And yet God's redemptive work through history beyond religious leaders and Caesars reveals that God's salvific plan for history and history being made in the here and now. To not hold this broad and deep understanding of God's work in the world now and at all times is to be in Jesus' words to be badly mistaken. I, I, don't, I don't know who won the soccer game. And it's not that that's unimportant. I probably didn't win. <laughs> it's just that in light of the story, the importance of that fact fades. My hope in all of this is that we might catch a glimpse of the expansive nature of God's kingdom. A kingdom that, though unimaginable at times, is a source of hope and healing, and it calls us into a future where pain and sorrow cease. 
My hope is that image of the age to come, that the, that the resurrection, the day when all is new and right, that it stirs in us a sense of awe and causes us to live tender lives today in light of God's love that is extended to us today and every day and into days without end. Let me pray for us. Spirit, I pray that you would continue to, to meet us and to minister to us. God, that you would heal things that have been wounded, even things that have been wounded in the church and in your name. But God, that you would stir in us a, a sense of the work and mission and purpose that you have for us in this moment, knowing that that the ways that we labor for your kingdom, they point to the day when all things are new and right. That this day isn't all that there is. And that your inbreaking kingdom isn't only this life, but a little bit better. But God, that, that our work and that our efforts, that they... They stir in us an imagination for your expansive kingdom. God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us, and that we would continue to hear your delight and your invitation to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.